0: Hey, uh, tonight we have a special treat at Scum of the Earth. Jonathan Merritt is here with us. Jonathan is a teaching pastor at Cross Point Church in Atlanta, Georgia. He is a uh, writer. He's a lot, written a lot of articles. Some have appeared in USA Today, Huffington Post, uh, the Washington Post, I think, Highlights for Children. And anyway, um, he... Uh, has written a book called Green Like God, which is really awesome because his roots are extremely Southern Baptist convention. And uh, so I'm sure, you know, he's not reacting against any culture he was brought up in. Same as none of you are reacting against any culture that you were brought up in or me reacting against being brought up Greek Orthodox because you never hear me talk about that. Anyway, um, I just wanted to uh, just say... We're really fortunate. Uh, our, uh, our connection through um, Margaret Feinberg actually made this happen. You guys remember Margaret from the time she's spoken here. Don't forget that we will have Jonathan's books on sale in the back after church tonight. I highly recommend it, especially if you're concerned about the environment. So, Jonathan, would you please come up? All right. Well, I'm actually
1: the fortunate one, so I really appreciate you guys. Let me be a part of your church tonight, and uh, whoa, what a uh, a sweet spirit you guys have! Um, it was real interesting when I left home. I uh, I came from uh, Atlanta. Are any of you guys from the South? Maybe some of you guys? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so we actually got snow. Uh, and I came here and I was a little PO'd because I expected that I would get some snow here. And uh, until this week, uh, I didn't, but I'm glad that it snowed and finally dumped on us a little bit. So uh, uh, in April of this year, I encountered uh, something that you guys probably all saw on the news. But I got to witness it firsthand living in the south, uh, living in the southeastern United States in the Gulf Coast area. We witnessed the the beginnings of the worst environmental disaster in U.S. history, a catastrophic explosion ruptured an oil pipe uh, running under the Gulf of Mexico. It caused untold destruction. 11 people lost their lives. Over 30 million gallons of oil were dumped into the Gulf of Mexico. Countless birds and fish have died. Entire economies have been devastated. In fact, I read an article a few days ago that said 11,000 people in southern Louisiana alone have lost their jobs, have filed for unemployment as a result of what happened in the Gulf. You know, I was looking at some pictures on the Internet a few months back and 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 sort of trying to see what all of this looked like, because I don't live right on the coast. And as I was looking at these pictures, my mind went to Psalm 19. Maybe you know Psalm 19. It says... The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they communicate knowledge. There is no place where their voice is not heard. Their words go out to the ends of the earth. You see, the earth, according to the scriptures, is to be declaring the glory of God. And I'm thinking about this, and I'm reading these scriptures... And my eyes go back to the computer screen. And I begin to see pictures of Gulf Coast residents standing on the banks of an oil-drenched sea weeping. And I'm seeing birds lifted out of the water, coated in black goo. And I ask myself a question I want you to ask yourselves. Is this the glory that the psalmist wrote about? Is this the majesty of the creator, God? I, uh, I think maybe we can even ask the question in a little more pointed way. Does God care about the oil spill? Does the God who notices if a single sparrow falls from the sky, does he take note of what's going on in the Gulf of Mexico, of the 11 who died, of the, the millions of gallons of spillage? Does our God care about those people who have lost their job in Louisiana? A few years ago, I began scouring the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, marking out every place where, where the Bible speaks about this issue. And I, I'm convinced that God cares very much about what happened in the Gulf of Mexico, that God cares very much about what's happening in the Pacific Ocean, that God cares very much about the record high levels of smog over northern Denver. That our God cares very much about what's going on on planet Earth. And I believe this for several reasons. A few that I want to share with you tonight. If you've got a Bible, cool, you can look at it. If you don't, that's fine. We'll have it on the screen. But Colossians chapter 1 is where we're going to kind of hang out tonight a little bit. Colossians chapter 1. And this book, it's, it's really an interesting book. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Colossian church. And it was written for a specific Purpose. This church was having their own crisis. The sea of orthodoxy left by Paul had been polluted with false teaching, and the Apostle Paul, upon hearing about this, became so concerned for them that he wrote a letter to remind them about our faith and specifically about the person and the work of Jesus. And Paul here casts Jesus as the sovereign and supreme Lord of all creation. And beginning in verse 15, this is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Beginning in verse 15, Paul gives us what is perhaps the most precise, most practical, most profound teaching about who Jesus is in the entire Bible. I want you to read this with me and just think about what Paul is saying. This is magnificent. He says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have, Supremacy. For God was pleased to have all fullness dwell in him, that's Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It's beautiful, isn't it? Here Paul gives us Jesus Christ 101. This, this introduction to Jesus. And Paul's doing here in Colossians what he does best. Just stepping aside and letting Jesus shine through. Just letting the person of Jesus come through. And what's interesting here is that what Paul is communicating doesn't only tell us about Christ. It has powerful implications for this conversation. And it's rooted in just three very, very simple truths. And if you were raised in church, you may already know these. And hopefully I'll be able to, to to shed some new light on these. And if you're not in church, you may be hearing these for the first time. The first one is this. Jesus is the creator God. That he is the creator of all things. Jesus, the scripture says, is the firstborn Over all creation. Now, when we read the word firstborn in English, it's a little bit deceptive. Uh, it it makes us think of, of one who was born before others. You know, I'm a, I'm a middle child. Any, do we have any middle children here? Any milder? Yes! We have, we have quite a few bitter folks here, pissed off at your parents. And we, we have any older siblings, firstborns here? Right? Okay. We, we already knew you guys. You were telling everybody on your row what you wanted them to do. You were bossing everyone around. And do we have any younger folks, younger, last-born children? All right. Last-born children. If, if you're a last-born child and you need anything, please let us know. We know you're used to getting everything you want. <laughs> so... So uh, middle child, so when I read this, I think of my older brother, right? I think of the firstborn child, the one that was born uh, before all of, of the others. And when we hear this, it's a little bit deceptive because this is not the meaning of the word here that Paul is using. It doesn't mean that Jesus was created like everything else, except he was created first. It means that Jesus is the ruler of everything. Psalm eighty-nine, twenty-seven, God says of this, the Messiah, I shall make him my firstborn. And then he goes on to explain what he means. He says, the highest of the kings of the earth. In fact, if you want to know how vast Jesus' jurisdiction is, just walk right out those doors and look around you because he made all of it. You know this. This sounds uh, a little bit confusing to some of us because when we think of, of of creation, we often think of like a nebulous God with with the voice of James Earl Jones, like shouting down, right? And things just start popping up. Or, or if you if if maybe you're not quite so churched, you think of like uh, Morgan Freeman and, and Bruce Almighty, right? So we think of God as sort of this nebulous God, and we don't think of Jesus when we think of creation. But Paul tells us here that right from the beginning, Jesus was there. In fact, John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus, right? And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was there. Jesus is the Creator God. And to fully appreciate this, we have to return to the first garden, to the Garden of Eden in Genesis. You know, you remember probably the beginning, even before the garden was created, it was dark. Was formless, it was formless, it was void, it was quiet. And in comes the voice of God, rhythmically, poetically, let there be, let there be, let there be. And it's powerful because each time in the scriptures we read let there be, it's followed by another set of words, it was so. It, it, we serve such a powerful God that with only a whisper, he's creating mountains and, and oceans and, and, and wildlife. It's a beautiful, poetic story, and really we could just stop there, couldn't we? We could just stop with the fact that God created all this stuff, and that's reason enough for us to care for it, because God doesn't just make stuff. God makes really good stuff, right? Uh, That's why every person in this room is priceless, even if you don't feel like it. Because there is a creator God, a God who sits on the throne of heaven and he shaped you and he formed you. Our magnificent God made you. And when God makes something, he makes something that's very, very good. In fact, in Genesis 1, we find this truth underscored as the writer moves back and forth from creation to commentary. Over and over, God surveys the creation and it says he saw it was What? That it was good. Uh, One theologian wrote about this, and he he used some beautiful language. He said, it was as if God was like a chef who's making a stew, and he dips his hand in it, and he's licking his fingers each day, and he's saying, this is good, this is good, this is very good. That's what God was doing. He He was sharing with us that he had not just created a world. He had created a good world, a valuable world. Recently, this, this truth really hit home for me. I was in Atlanta, where my home is, and I went down to a museum, and I was walking around. I'd, I'd gone down to see a, a particular exhibit, but I'm cheap, so I said, you know what? I paid for this ticket. I'm going to go see everything in this building. So I'm walking around. I'm looking at the, uh, their regular collection, and I'm up in the corner of the top floor, and I came face-to-face with an original Monet. I don't know if any of you guys are, are into art, but, but Monet is just, he's, right? He's like the greatest impressionist who, who ever lived, right? He's, it's, he's just an amazing artist. And I've come face to face with this masterpiece. And I'm sitting there and something occurred to me. I, I thought, you know, if I were to take that painting off the wall and I were to destroy that painting or deface that painting uh, after I got out of jail... Um, I, would, I, I, would, I would have made a statement not only about the painting, but about the painter, right? It would be disrespectful not just to the masterpiece, but to the master who made it, right? And as I sat there staring at this piece, uh, I started watching others come up, each one walking by, making the same discovery I had made, and their eyes would widen. And they'd they'd whisper to their friends, alerting them to the value of the piece that that sat before them. And interestingly, most people who came upon Monet's painting had two responses. First, they sat in awe of the museum masterpiece. And second, they were careful not to damage it. And sitting on this sort of straight-backed museum bench in downtown Atlanta, it occurred to me, these are the same responses we should have when we encounter God's masterpiece, first, we have to have this appropriate awe over what God has made. You'll remember the story of Job, right? Job has kind of having a crappy time, and things are falling apart in his life, and he's facing his own crisis, and he's lamenting this thing, and he's got these really bad friends, and they're coming in and giving him terrible advice, and it's just a disaster, and then God shows up. And God gives the longest soliloquy that God gives in the entire Bible. And what does he talk about? Creation, right? Job asks some hard questions, and God responds with a tour. Of creation, and Job has shown the heavenly bodies and the living creatures and land and the air and the sea, and he witnesses storms and sunsets, and he's overwhelmed with the creator's creation. And God says in Job 37:14, "Listen to this, O Job, stand still and consider the wondrous works of God." And Job has awe over what God has made. But we should also not just have awe, we should steward the creation, being careful not to leave unnecessary smudges from our life's fingerprints. Right after God painted his masterpiece called Earth, the Bible says the Lord God took the first man, Adam, and he placed him in the garden to cultivate it and to take care of it. You see, because Jesus is the creator God, we should respond with awe for his handiwork. And care for his creation. But there's another thing here that Paul teaches us. He says that Jesus is not only the creator of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. In fact in verse 17 it says that in, that Jesus holds all things together. You see Jesus maintains the delicate balance that keeps our world in existence. The Bible says the eagle soars at his command. And the sun rises because God tells it to. Who who holds the particles of an atom together with an inexplicable force? Who holds the earth tilted at exactly 23.5 degrees so that we neither freeze nor burn up? Jesus is the sustainer and he is the answer to all these questions. Jesus is gravity and centrifugal force. All things which cannot be explained are explained in Christ. Did you get that? All things which cannot be explained are explained in Christ. But why? You know, that's a big question. If we can accept that Jesus holds everything together, that he sustains it, we have to ask that big question. Why? He could have made an earth that sustains itself, but he made an earth that he is intimately involved with. Well, I think for one reason, because he loves it. That God loves things. He makes Psalm 145 says God loves everything that He's made. God loves the land He's created, which is why Old Testament laws prohibited overworking the soil. He loves the animals He's created, which is why, in the words of one theologian, He appoints Moses to be the game warden of Israel, right to manage animal populations. The Scripture tells us God feeds the ravens when He hears their hungry cries, and that He watches over mountain goats and does during their pregnancies as followers of Jesus, if we love God, should we not love what God loves? If we love God, should we not love what God loves? But there's another reason that I think Christ sustains all things. And it goes back to what we mentioned at the beginning. Creation reveals God to us. You see, the world around us, nature, is is God's apologetic about himself. Paul says in in Romans 1, no person is without excuse if they reject God. Why? Because all of God's attributes have been revealed to them through the things God's made. You know, you think about his sustaining work for a minute. The air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat. They miraculously bring us life day in and day out with no prodding from us whatsoever. Whatsoever. We go outside and and place a a seed in the ground, and it grows into corn and wheat and rice, miraculously. And, And it's as if God is saying to us, I am here, and I want to provide for you. Water condenses in the clouds and rains onto the mountaintops and runs down into the rivers each year over and over and over. And it's as if God is speaking to us through even a simple cycle. Without words, it's as if God is saying to us, I want a relationship with you. You even think of the beauty of a a sunset or a snow-tipped mountain peak. And you stand before it, and it's as if God is saying, I'm here, and I want to communicate with you. Recently, a friend brought a a fact to my attention that I had never considered. He showed me an article that, that said that the outer rings of Saturn are braided. How can we not revel at a God who's created such a thing? What must God be like that He that He paints fish that a human eye will never see? What must God be like that He creates stars in far-off galaxies that He braided the rings of Saturn? What must He be like if He made delicate things like peacock feathers and butterfly wings? What must that God be like you know I've often felt closest to God in nature and I bet if I were to ask most of you in this room you would say that the same thing is true for you that there was a time when you were standing and and viewing that sunset and you were bathing in the purplish hue and you just felt closer to God or you were the one standing on the snow-tipped mountain peak, and you just felt like you had taken a couple steps closer to the one who made it. And that's the way it's supposed to be, because we meet God in nature. But after looking to the past to understand Jesus as creator, and looking at the present to see Jesus as sustainer, Paul gives us what may be the most profound truth of all three. Jesus is the Redeemer of all things. He is the Redeemer of all things. Look back again at Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. It said, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself. By making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. When Paul here mentions whether things on earth or things in heaven, it's his way of saying everything. Everything. The entire universe is coming under, has come under the supremacy of the Redeemer. That God, through the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross, is redeeming all things. You know, we often think about God redeeming us, don't we? But Paul here says, not only has he reconciled us to himself, that the God who created all things and sustains all things is also the redeemer of all things. And you say, well, I thought Jesus came to earth so we could go to heaven. And that's true. But if that's our whole understanding of the work of Christ, Paul would say we have an incomplete understanding. You know, a good friend of mine once asked a question, and it stuck with me forever. He says, if, if the point of life is just to get humans to eternity, why weren't we just born in heaven? Think about that. If the point of life is just to get out of here and go somewhere else, why does God place us on this earth and leave us in this mess for 60 or 70 or 80 years? Well, the Bible says that the principal reason is to glorify the one that made and sustains and redeems everything through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That God wants to make himself known to us and through us. But unfortunately, when we fail to connect with God through his megaphone in the world around us, we sidestep the Redeemer himself. A friend of mine who's in the army was recently sent to... Uh, middle of nowhere Arizona and uh, to get some training done and not having spent a lot of time out west I decided to go out and visit and to absorb you know the Grand Canyon state and everything that I had I'd never seen the Grand Canyon before so uh, I I catch a plane I I go to Arizona and uh, when I land this strange urge to buy a mass-produced Indian blanket overwhelmed me I know that that's happened with you guys you just they're just piling up in your closet and so I actually I bought, went ahead and bought two just in case something happened. The one I'd have an extra Indian blanket. You never know when you need an Indian blanket. So, grabbed some Indian blankets, threw them in the trunk of her car, and we drove several hours to this sort of dusty, forgotten place where my friend was stationed. We pull into this Spanish style house and we unload this car, realizing that we're very, very far away from the Grand Canyon. Apparently, the Grand Canyon's not all over the entire state of Arizona. I didn't know this. So we were very, very, very far away, uh, uh, further than we thought, and believe it or not, in this sparsely populated town, I think it's the only town in America that doesn't even have a Walmart, there was nothing to do here. So I was here for four days in Arizona, and uh, I remember the first night, the sun had just fallen over the horizon when I began to get stir-crazy and bored. And in a frustrated huff, uh, I recovered one of those badly needed Indian blankets and drug it out the door like Linus from the Peanuts. And I spread it out on the front lawn and I laid down on top of it to get a good pout on, you know. um, And I began to question why I'd flown across the United States in the first place. Why did I even come to Arizona? And as I was Frustrated and mad and bored and ticked and all those things, I looked up in the night sky and I was besieged by beauty. Millions of stars. Millions of stars. Clusters and constellations I didn't even know existed. Things that, because of the smog where I live in Atlanta, it's not even possible for me to see. I was entranced by these stars. I wanted to know their names. The experience swept me with awe. It swept me with humility as I became aware not only of my insignificance, but I became aware of God's greatness. See, the God who created vastness with just a few words, that God has chosen to love us, to redeem everything, to call us into relationship with himself. You know, they say some of the best stargazing in the United States is to be found in Arizona. But I think... There are great spiritual lessons in Arizona as well. I didn't come to Arizona to invest in the up-and-coming Indian blanket industry. I didn't go to Arizona to see the Grand Canyon, to hang out with a friend. I came to experience the beauty and power of my Redeemer, to worship my Redeemer in a starlit sanctuary. I'm usually so busy rushing through life to get ahead. I don't even take time to enjoy and absorb the things that God has made surrounding me. And isn't that like most of us? You know, we, 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 we hustle to work and we hustle home and we, we pick up kids from school if you've got kids. And you drop them off at soccer practice and you race through the grocery store so that you can make it home in time to see the office, right? And we never take time to experience God through the world. And it occurs to me, we don't even stop to look at the stars anymore. But how often do we miss out on a God moment because we're too busier or we're too distracted? And you see, the same God that speaks through the stars, he's the one who's written about in the Gospels. That same God is our Redeemer, Jesus, the one who was crucified between two thieves, is also the one to whom all creation moves and breathes. This is the Jesus who was born in a manger. ...and warmed by animals. He's the good shepherd... ...who spent 40 days of ministry training in wilderness camp. He called four fishermen to be some of his beloved disciples... ...before ascending a mountainside... ...and promising that the meek shall inherit the earth. This Jesus is the one who said that heaven is God's throne... ...and earth is God's footstool. This Christ, he picks wheat and teaches with nature... He describes himself as the bread of life and the true vine in a vineyard where his father is the gardener. He is the one that can command fish to be caught by casting a net. And the scriptures say even the winds and the waves obey him. And He's the one who at the end of time, the Bible says, will make all things new. See, the promise of eternity is the promise of a renewed people in right relationship with God and a renewed creation that glorifies the Creator forever. And just as God began the process of reconciling the earth to Himself, He will one day complete that process when Christ returns. And that's good news, isn't it? is mean, Isn't that good news? You know, people always ask me, all right, Jonathan, you, you've sold me, right? I get this, you've, I'm convinced. But now what? It, now what do I do? That's sort of the big question, right? Now what, so what? And I love to remind people of that little slogan because it, it's, it's, it's kind of cliche, but it's still helpful. Reduce, reuse, recycle, right? We all heard that. You've got that on your little reusable shopping bags that you take to the grocery store. Um, and I think that's a good starting point. But you know, I always add a fourth term. Reflect. Reflect. See, we should reflect on the glory of God that's peeking through the world around us. We should reflect on how God is holding everything together at this place, in this very moment. And we should reflect on what Jesus has accomplished when he left heaven. And he became a carbon-based life form, and he, and he breathed the air we breathe. And he ate the food we eat and he drank the water we drink. And then he stretched out his arms and he died on a cross for us. The more time we reflect on what God has accomplished on our behalf, the more joy we experience. And the more joy we experience, the more that that joy overflows into the way we live. And when we begin to live our lives differently and we begin to reflect on what Christ has done, we can answer the question... We asked at the very beginning, does God care about environmental devastation? Yes, he does, because he made it, because he's involved with sustaining it, because he has a plan to redeem it. And it's a plan that he's already begun with the death of Christ. And you know what's the best news? It includes each and every one of us. Amen. Let's pray together. You see, when, when, when Adam fell, the pipeline of sin burst and flooded the world. And from that moment until this moment, every one of us, every human being who's ever lived, found himself or herself stuck in the mire of sin with no hope for escape. But you know what? God God, who is rich in mercy and love, he has reached down and he has scooped us up and rinsed the oil of sin off us with the blood of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you don't know that, God. Some people, I'm sure, in this room don't. But meeting that creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, is the best decision I think you'll ever make. And Lord, every time we consider your works, we realize our need for you. Father, we thank you for all the gifts that you've given us. We know that every good and perfect gift comes from you. We thank you for the sun and the snow. Thank you for all the things that we forget to express gratitude for, that we enjoy every day. God, we're, we're grateful for the gift of freedom, that we can come to a place like this, and, and we can worship you without fear of imprisonment, punishment, punishment. Lord, we lift up our brothers and sisters in persecuted countries who don't enjoy those freedoms. We ask that you, you give them your, your mercy, a special touch of grace this evening. Lord, most of all, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for sending your son. If there's anything good about us, it's that Jesus lives in us. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. I think uh, I'm going to open up for a couple of questions. Uh, if you guys have any questions, if you don't, if there's crickets, I'll just kind of dance off the stage, and we'll be we'll be good to go. But if you have any questions, I, I'll be happy to ask uh, to to answer any questions that that you you have about this uh, subject or anything else. Yes. Whoa! What has my reception been in the Southern Baptist Convention? Yeah, uh, well, if, I, if I'm going to be honest, it, it's, uh, it's mixed, but, you know, it's, a, it's I, I feel like in the, in the Southern Baptist Convention, I don't know, is, anybody, is your, anybody's background Southern Baptist here? All right, we've got enough to start a support group. Um, so, it, it's, the reception has been mixed, but I will tell you, there's, there's a totally different response that you get from younger folks, than from some of, of the, the older Southern Baptists. And I think that that's, that's signs that there's a new life coming up in our denomination. I'm real excited for that. I feel like among many young folks, I've said it's been a virtual exhale that you finally have people who are, are waking up to what I think are some of the most pressing problems that, that, quite frankly, Christians have got to have an answer to in the 21st century. So uh, it's been mixed, but, but I, overall I'm still very, very encouraged Yeah, well, it's a little bit of both. Um, the book, it starts where I, I think every good book starts, with Scripture. Because I think as, as Christians, if we're ever going to have an answer to this issue, it must be grounded in the Scriptures. It must be grounded in, in clear thinking and good theology. And so I sort of take a journey through the Scriptures from, from Genesis all the way through the end of the New Testament. And then I kind of back up and punt. And looking through that biblical prism, I start to 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 think through some of these really really important uh, issues that we're facing. And then there's a there's an appendix in there that has a lot of practical tips, so you can go nuts on that if you want to. Uh, but overall, it's I guess it's a little bit of both.
0: Uh-huh.
1: The biggest problems that I think we're facing. Uh, I'll give you some that get big, a lot of face time, uh, water, you know, we, we, we can drink water here, clean water, and we don't even think anything about it. We we forget that there are 1.2 billion people who don't have access to, to safe drinking water. That 3 million of them, mostly children, will die this year from preventable water-related diseases. I think that's a big deal. Uh, I would say that, that climate change is something that we're facing that's, that's a really big deal. Some of you, maybe you believe in, in that climate change is a problem, and maybe you don't, but I have good news. The things that we would do to reduce uh, climate change, if it is occurring, are things we should be doing anyway. You know, uh, Who doesn't want to, to have less smog in the air that's causing record high levels of childhood asthma? Who wants to be the Christian who's standing around when the last tree is cut down and say, that wasn't a great idea? You know, so these are things that we should all want to do, and uh, so I would say that those are those are some uh, big issues in the United States. One of the most, I, I think, one of the worst things we're facing is uh, mountaintop removal coal mining, which is, is is happening in in West Virginia and Kentucky, and and uh, it's just one of the worst environmental problems you've never heard of. So, yeah, that's what I would say. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So the question is: is is what isn't all of this going to be destroyed? Um, and some folks uh, believe that. I, I don't happen to believe that. I think that this this picture, in fact, in the scriptures, it's the fire that's talked about is compared to the flood. And as you remember the Noah's flood, it didn't destroy everything; it renewed everything. And I think there will be a renewal that happens at the end. But here's the good news: it doesn't really matter, right? Uh, One of my favorite passages is the parable of the talents, where we find the businessman uh, giving money, basically, to his servants, and he goes away for a while, and when he comes back, what does he want to know? What did you do with all my stuff while I was gone? That's the first thing that that he wants to know, and I read that and I think, the knowledge of a returning master doesn't free us from our earthly obligations. It calls us to them. So regardless of what happens at the end of time, uh, we are still called in the here and now to be faithful stewards. See, there will be war till the end of time. And yet Jesus stood and said, blessed are the peacemakers, right? Uh, we know that, that the poor will always be among us. And Jesus says, when you care for the least of these, you've cared for me. And so even in the here and now, regardless of the way that it all flushes out in the end, we're called to be faithful followers of Jesus. Yes? yeah who replaced God with environmentalism right yeah there there are a lot of folks like that out there. The secular environmentalists have a very different perspective than i have we're it's It's wonderful that I get to work with people on the same issue for for a different reason sometimes we have different motivation but we do we do similar work uh i don't I just don't see that as a problem in the church as much um but I think that the way that, you, the way that you combat that is you really root yourself in the Scripture because we find ourselves surrounded by a creator who's made a creation, who stands behind the creation. And so for us then, the creation becomes a touch point for the God who made it rather than the other way around. And I think, I think by reading the Scriptures, by reflecting on the Scriptures, it keeps us from those oversteps like pantheism. You see, the, the two biggest problems that we face today in society with this issue there are people that want to treat the world as if it were God, right? Those are the pantheists. But we have an even bigger problem we face in the church, especially in the evangelical church. These are people who want to act as if we are God, right? And so it's as if we're not accountable to anyone for the way that we live our lives. And I think that by rooting ourselves in the beautiful stories and the beautiful teachings of the text itself, we keep ourselves from both extremes. From treating nature as if it were God, and for acting as if we are God. I think we got one more. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you know, I think um, I think every generation, and I have to be really, really careful because um, I think it was George Orwell that said every generation thinks itself more enlightened than the generation who came before it, and wiser than the generation that comes after it. So they have to be really careful because every generation has its blind spots. And I would say that for the last generation of Christians, this was maybe one of their blind spots. And, and even us in this room, as we gather together, we're making our own mistakes practically and theologically. Uh, but I'm very encouraged that we're coming back now, I think, as a community to rediscover these teachings and to re-engage our world. And it's and it's something that's beautiful to see because it's breathing new life in in a movement that quite frankly needs to speak out on these things uh there's uh, you 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 know you asked some other questions about things like greenwashing and and which is 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 things that are green but they're not green and 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 you know you just have to be i think very discerning as you engage this conversation but i just say you know what wherever as long as you're engaged in the conversation that's that's cool for me allow the spirit to lead uh, and I, I trust that the Spirit, man, He does what He does best. He leads us right to the water, and then we just drink. So uh, I just encourage people to begin engaging the Scriptures, thinking about these things and reflecting on these things, and, and I trust that the Spirit will, will work all that out. So I'm going to turn over to, to Pastor Mike, but I appreciate you guys taking some time and listening to me today.